Welcome back to the Automate Construction Podcast. I'm joined today by Nick Holden, CEO of Contour, uh, Contour 3D in Australia, innovating construction technology with 3D printed mortars, their own printer. They didn't buy one. They built it themselves. Uh, Nick, how are you doing this morning? I'm good. Thanks, Jarrett. Yeah, so I want to ask, when you first started this company, did you consider buying a printer or did you immediately know you wanted to build your own? Uh, look, that, that, that's a good question. Uh, initially, I did contact all the all the major players back in sort of 2019 when we I started looking at this, uh, from the robotic printers all the way through to the, the large sort of gantry style ones. But look, after talking to them, uh, and obviously being in Australia, which is quite remote for shipping and, and uh, the exchange rate isn't kind to us at the moment against the euro or the US dollar, look, we did decide to build our own printer. Uh, and to be honest, that's that's sort of my background and some of the guys I have working for me. Uh, we are builders. We do do our own electrics uh, and all the associated components. So we, we took it we took it on uh, to build a printer. Initially, we built a very small one, uh, which was say eight foot long, four foot wide, four foot high, so to speak. Uh, and we got some very good results on that. So that sort of gave us a confidence then to go forth and build a larger style printer. And it's always, it's obviously, it's always a challenge. There's that many different methodologies out there and that many different printers and that many different ideas. So what road do you go down? So that probably took us a good couple of months to determine what we wanted to do. Uh, and then obviously we had to get a control system to run that particular printer as well, which was another consideration because we weren't at the stage of understanding the technology enough to build our own control system and what was required. So at that stage, we did repurpose a CNC control system that was running a nine-axis lathe, for example. So that was a challenge within itself, but uh, you just got to keep going, right? Don't give up. Yeah, and so you guys basically from scratch developed your own eight-foot by ten-foot uh, system, you said, and that's not so small. A lot of groups start with like one meter by one meter by one meter. No, it wasn't quite that large. It was a little bit. Uh, it was a little bit smaller. It was uh, 2.4 meters long, eight foot. It was 1.2 meters wide, and it would print up to 1.2 meters high. Uh, and that was a very small gantry system that we sort of knocked together out of steel components at the time. Uh, and then after the success we had on that, and we used that machine obviously to practice with the material, the pumping methodology, the the control systems, and just getting getting the small components right and the buildability. Mm -hmm. And once we did that, then that sort of did give us the confidence then to go forward. And then we did build a larger printer, which we which we have uh, used to obviously construct or print our first large structure, and uh, which is currently printing our second structure at the moment, local to the factory. But the second printer was uh, 20 meters long uh, in its tracks. It was 3.3 meters high, and it was around about nine meters wide in its span. Uh, and we particularly developed that one because we knew we had a particular job coming up, uh, which was for a TV show over here called The Block. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the highest rating, or it is the highest rating renovation show over here. They get sort of 1.2 million views per episode per week, which was obviously amazing exposure for us. So we constructed that printer particularly for that job. Uh, and then off, off we went. We obviously madly testing in the factory, the materials and the buildabilities. And we did print some very, very large structures inside the factory, which in turn we obviously demolished and <laughs> crushed back up into dust. But uh, that was a very challenging process, uh, as, as all your sort of read, all your followers would know that, that have been down this road. 
There's, at the moment, there's people giving out information, which is very nice of them, uh, to a point. And I do watch all your videos, so thank you very much. I've obviously learned a hell of a lot off watching what other people do. But at the end of the day, you know, there's no real instruction book. So we, we genuinely had to make everything up ourselves. We were here till midnight, you know, on many occasions, printing, having things collapse. You know, and that was literally weeks before we were heading off uh, to pack the machine up and head off to print this this 70 square meter structure, three meters high, on on, on national television. Uh, it was pre-recorded, but you know that was in Victoria, which is a good sort of 12 hours drive from where we are located up in Sydney, Australia. So mm -hmm. literally the week or a couple of days before, you know, they rang and said, "Right, you ready?" And I said, "Yes." And I went down to the guys in the factory and we're like, "Right." We're doing this, and they're like, "We're not ready," and I'm like, "We are. We're doing it." So the day before, we packed up the machine, put it in a truck, and we we drove it down there, and yeah, off off we went. Did you have it fully assembled before you packed it up? We did. Yeah, we were printing with it the day before in the factory, and uh, yeah. So, what's the takedown process like? Well, that, that's uh, that's a good question because this particular machine was never meant to leave the factory. This was initial. Mm -hmm. We did it, as, as I said earlier, we extended the accesses uh, to, to print this particular structure when we knew. But when we first built this machine, it was never meant to leave the factory. And we built this during COVID, so we couldn't get motors, we couldn't get control systems. Raw materials were quite hard to source, so we, we literally built it out of steel SHSs. You know, we weld, we're all welders here and machine guys and machinists, so we, we hacked this thing together. Uh, we were putting additional braces on it on the fly to sort of stop wobble and travel. And we put a hell of a lot of work into the CNC controller uh, to really sort of smooth out the motors and the algorithms and the servo motors. So look, it was well, your question on takedown. It was not great because it was never meant to be taken down and put back up. All, yeah. the, all, the, all the control systems were hardwired. We didn't have plugs on them. So we literally had to I'm not going to say cut the wires, but we pulled wires out of plugs and connectors, uh, put them all on pallets, strapped it all up. We rented a semi truck. You updated them. It was it was horrendous. We rented it. Uh, we rented a, tr a big truck. Uh, we put it on the truck and we went down there. Fortunately, we had a. It took us a day to set up on site, which was pretty good. Uh, when we got down there and the site was prepared, I'd already been down there. We'd spoken to the guys and the builders down there, so they knew what was required. Uh, but we had to operate off generators, so therefore we had to have emergency backup power supply units and a lot of stuff we hadn't planned on. And then once we got the machine operating, uh, probably the next day after we got there, after we set up, uh, then we were getting errors in the system. You know, we were getting electrical errors, we were getting codes. We were, uh, and obviously, being hardwired, we were just battling to find out where these problems were coming from. And we ended up running new wires for certain sensors which weren't operating. Uh, we got that working. We were running some of our control system off uh, iPads and remote Wi-Fi, which we had set up. But they were building on site there. They were building six dwellings on sites, big projects, huge. You know, this, this construction project, they must have had five or 600 people on site at any one time. This thing was massive. So the electrical in interference, there was excavators, there was all sorts of machinery, cranes operating. So therefore, then the iPad was kept dropping out. You know, we were getting interference in the Wi-Fi signals. The camera crew were using the same channels, and it was it was challenging. So therefore, we had to sort of hardwire all the safety systems as well, and the iPad control, and 
we, we eventually got there uh, and it was a little bit like the duck under the water. No one was sort of seeing anything. We had tents set up. We were sort of, we were in the background working feverishly to overcome the issues we were having. <laughs> uh, but Certainly. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on there. You're dealing with the hardware issues and then also you're printing outside for the first time as opposed to in the factory, which introduces a host of new challenges. Uh, I want to ask about all that stuff, but I also am curious, the 12-hour transport went off without a hitch? Yeah, it did. Just went smooth? Yeah, uh, that's fine. Yeah, we were driving the truck ourselves, uh, and then we were sort of a convoy of uh, cars behind the truck. But that was fine. You know, I, yeah, we're very good at uh, – I've got another business in the composite building industry, so we're very familiar with transportation of sensitive materials and, and machinery and packaging up. No, so that, that was fine. When we got to sites, all the machinery that we required for the offload and the assembly was there for us waiting, uh, which was supplied by the workers uh, and the TV company. So, mm -hmm. so look, they, they were there to help us. They didn't want us to fail. Or maybe they did. That's part of a reality TV show, right? But <laughs> it was our mission not to fail because... Maybe struggle and then succeed. We, we definitely struggled and they caught that on camera and then we eventually did succeed. But... As you could imagine, with that many people on site, and there was contestants, and there was TV crews and cameras, we had a literal cast of thousands watching us because we were the, obviously the buzz, the buzz of the block, the buzz of the TV show. You know, because normal construction had been going on for quite a while, but something different comes in. You know, something sort of new age, cutting edge. So we had many, many people just lined up behind, you know, barriers watching us, and. We might get to this later, but the first day when we started printing, it was always like, they go, when are you starting? Like, it's an hour, an hour, an hour. And they'd eventually walk up and go, it's another hour? I'm like, yep. <laughs> we just kept having little niggly problems. But, uh, and they actually set up a couch outside. The contestants sat down. They had popcorn. They were watching us. The TV cameras were there. Everyone had a microphone on, so they were capturing every swear word, every thing you threw, you know. <laughs> I'm sorry for not knowing about the show so much, but when you say contestants, are you competing with them? No, we weren't. This was a little bit different. So the show runs over 12 weeks and they, 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 they come to site. They've got uh, the skeleton of a house and it is they generally work 15 hours a day, six days a week to sort of finish these houses. And then at the end of the competition, they auction the houses off and then obviously they, they get some prize money and some, you know, whatever they whatever they make out of the house. Uh, and if they do a good job, they'll get more money because the auction result will be higher. So it is really a, it's a, it's a very fast paced show. You know, I've, uh, they, they break the contestants, they really do. So the mentality is it's just get it done. You know, that there's no hanging around, there's no sort of thinking about anything. So we were very fortunate that uh, as part of the show, they were also the, the host of the show this year was doing a house as well. With, with the help of builders and so forth. So we actually constructed a dwelling for the, the host of the show as part of his main house. Wow. Mm. So how many building projects have you done so far? Uh, we've done two major ones. We've obviously done a lot of testing and hundreds of tons, or maybe not yeah, yeah. lots of tons through the factory. Uh, that was our first major one, uh, which was 70 square meters, three meters high. And as you mentioned before, it was outdoors. Uh, there was a lot going on, and at that time of year in Victoria, we did it in winter. And I know a lot of people think Australia doesn't get cold, but this was in Mount Massenden in regional Victoria, so it was in the middle of the cold country. You know, it was in a hollow of a mountain, so we were printing 
during the days it could get up to uh, 20, 25 degrees Celsius, uh, which is fine. That's okay. But it was super windy, which was a challenge, which we'd never experienced before being in a factory environment. But then on an evening, the temperature would drop really quickly to almost zero. So one, one, a funny, one night uh, we were print, the printer was going so well, it was running from lunchtime all day. We had the material, we, everything was working. You meant to finish work at six o'clock or something because there's, there's neighbors. They were remote, but there was neighbors. But uh, we sort of asked the question, the guy said, yep, if you get a complaint, you've got to stop. But we pushed through. We were printing till possibly 1 a.m. in the morning, 1.30. Uh, and we were, we were keeping going. We would have gone through till daylight. But at that point, one of the guys goes, it's raining. You know? And I stepped outside the tent and I was like, that ain't rain. Uh, it, it was starting to sleet and snow on us. <laughs> so, <laughs> so at that point, we obviously packed up, packed up for the day, went home and came back at lunchtime the next day. So it was challenging. The film we had was there with you? What's that, sorry? The film crew was there with you? No, not until that time, but they did leave uh, GoPro, GoPro cameras all over the machine and, and the sites. Uh, so oh, we, they got to stay in person for that moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So no, so that was fun. Look, and it was a it was a baptism of fire, obviously being outdoors and under those challenging circumstances. And it's really crazy that you were willing to let them film your first print. There's groups that I ask to film their first print and they don't let me because they're not comfortable with the equipment yet. They want to learn how it works. They don't want to make a mistake on camera. Uh, and I'm just one guy with my own equipment. I try not to get in their way at all. You had a whole camera crew in 4K, 8K probably. Yep, yep. Yeah, and that, that was pretty crazy. And Look, that, that stuff doesn't bother me. I'm a, I'm a very methodical person, uh, but I'm also, I've got an element of I'll fly by the seat of my pants to, to sure. get results and to, and I'll, I'll just keep going and I won't give up. Uh, that can well, be big a big risk, big reward, I guess. What do you think the result was of getting that media attention? Oh, I mean, it was phenomenal. The, the inbound inquiry we had and the credibility that, that, uh, that, that I wouldn't say buys you, but that, that gains you, uh, just almost can't be bought. I mean, the exposure that we got there for just about nothing, you know what I mean? Yes, we pay for the materials and certain they paid for the TV time, but that TV time's worth about $10,000 a second, you know, what they charge out at uh, for, for prime time exposure. So we got a hell of a lot of inquiry afterwards. We obviously got some inquiry you don't want. You get the mums and dads at this stage going, oh, can you build me a house? You know, all the individuals, and we're not at that stage, and um, mm -hmm. we haven't determined the final business model around that yet. But we got a lot of inquiry as well from the bigger end of town, like the uh, the major developers within Australia or the major construction companies. That more than anything, I suppose they don't want to miss the boat or they don't want to miss out on something. Uh, and because we were then portrayed on the TV, which we were, we built the first structure in this area, outdoors. Uh, you know, we, we had a jump on that and we did a very good job. You know, the, the and I think I've said to you before, uh, and you've seen some of the videos from site, the, the print resolution that we, we were getting in the factory and on site was absolutely world-class, uh, you know, and the accuracy and from an R&D machine that was built out of bits of steel and servo motors that we literally borrowed because we couldn't get any in time and control systems that weren't designed for that, uh, whether it's through good luck, good measure, 
or just dogged persistence, uh, we, we absolutely got there. And to some degree on TV, I was almost embarrassed by the look of the printer. You know, we had all these visions of skinning it, and making it look super high tech and robot like sort of iconish, but, uh, with the time constraints and then pushing, you know, we didn't have time to do any of that. So we just, we turned up, we did it. It was challenging, you know, but the end result was absolutely beyond our expectations. That outside, it's just a plastic garnish, not important. <laughs> that's, that, that's right. <laughs> but as you know, TV is all about glitz and glamour to a certain degree. Uh, so we certainly didn't have any of the glitz and glamour apart from the important stuff, you know, the layer quality that we were putting down, the building that was designed by a very high-end architect, Julian Brenchley in Australia. Uh, you know, so we, we got it done. And it was, it was one of those things where we, we worked that hard, uh, you know, to get that done, to bring the machinery down there, to get it working. I think the second we walked all off site, I think we all slept for a week, <laughs> literally. I said to the guys in the factory when we left, I said, I don't want to see you for at least three days. You know, I just... Did any hoses burst? No, no, nothing, no, nothing. So that was really fortunate. And they didn't even have, see, we didn't have our own power in that application. So they got us a three-phase generator, which was super reliable until the day we absolutely needed it. Uh, this thing had ran for months on site and then it broke down. So on a Sunday, we had to go and then source a secondary generator. Yeah, so, so we, we had our problems and we had our struggles, but uh, that was, the result was excellent. Yeah, and the mixer pump system that you used, how did you sort that out? Well, initially we, we did start with our own mixer pump system. Uh, we built one, which, which we still got here, which works very well. Um, but to tie this into something else, we do also have a six-axis robot here on a linear track, uh, mm -hmm. which we're doing some factory printing with and development work. So to run that, we actually bought an MAI machine. Uh, so mm -hmm. we ended up taking the my machine to site, uh, and that was just faultless. We had to run off uh, IBCs of water, you know, because they didn't have running water for us in that particular location either. Uh, but that was it, it worked. It just was absolutely a workhorse. It was faultless. That's great. I really never hear that. Yeah, so it's absolutely nice. faultless. And and when I when I approached those guys and said, look, we're building a house with this thing. It's seventy square meters. It's big. Uh, and they said, look, we haven't had any customers that have done that before. So, again, you're sort of flying by the city of pants and, the, right, fine, we'll, we'll make it up. <laughs> and we did. I wonder if it's the same product I had seen last. They had a, I saw their system at Vertigo uh, almost two years ago. It, it is. Um, it's, it's, yeah, I know Volca. It is exactly the same as Volca's machine. Wow. The Multimix 3. I, it, was, it was phenomenal. Yep. Good to hear. So the, you're working out your business plan now, I guess this time of year, December, entering the new year, people are always uh, figuring stuff out, especially you having completed such a big project. Uh, now the world's your oyster. Sure. Is there any light you can shed on what things you're considering without giving too much away? No, no, no. I don't, I don't mind giving, giving it all away. You know, so I really appreciate what you've given me in the past from watching your videos. Uh, and I, I understand what that gives back to other people. Uh, and I'm not someone to give absolute finite IP, but uh, the general overviews, you know, that, that really helped me listening to other people. And to go back to that, we were, when we started, we've not been, stealth mode is the wrong word, but we'd just been operating on our own. I rented a small factory. 
to develop the machinery. We're working with the University of New South Wales to develop the mix. Uh, but that's uh, and with my other business, and I have enough, you know. I've sort of tapered off my other business a little bit now to concentrate 80% of my time on 3D. We've got mm-hmm. eight people here at the moment. Uh, we hope to expand that to sort of 20 next year as the, as the machinery and the uh, business model evolves. But what I have been doing is I've been inviting, uh, you know, key people, I suppose, and key organisations to the structure that we printed down in Victoria for the block uh, to come and have a look at it, you know, like the the how the big housing developers, the the major construction companies, so, and that sort of goes towards what is our eventual business model. But at the moment, I was very fortunate enough to be able to self-fund it uh, to this point, and probably a little bit further. Mm-hmm. So that borders a little bit of time in not rushing into taking on projects which probably weren't ideal, you know, like your mums and dads that want a house in the middle of nowhere, just a one-off house. Uh, which is where you, I don't think you can really make a lot of money, you know, doing that sort of thing. But if so, if it's not about the money in the first first iteration of the business model, we want to get it right, you know, to a large degree. But as you say, we're getting it right. If that's on the fly, if it's in the factory, whatever, you know. But we just want to gain experience. Uh, I think I want to get another five or six major size structures on the ground outdoors. Uh, and then within that period, then we'll determine what the business model is, whether that is we set up a construction arm and we do print houses. But then again, maybe I don't want to print one-offs. You know, it's, it's sort of like the, uh, you know, we don't get out of bed for less than 10 houses or something on a particular site. Uh, so you can gain the efficiencies and you can gain the, you know, just, just the volume efficiencies that come with that. So we've got one control system operating, you know, two machines. And mm-hmm. have two people just monitoring between two houses. Uh, that sounds that sounds something that's sort of would be attractive. Uh, I deal with the general public in my other business, and I hate them. <laughs> I, I am I am one of them, you know. I'm sure many times on in other situations, but whether then there is obviously a market for that general building and public, whether we license machinery or we franchise that model out, I'm, I'm not sure yet. But I do, with the, with the robot that we do have, the six-axis robot, we do have seven-axis, I suppose, with the track in the factory. I do want to start commercially printing some, some elements, sausages, I suppose, you know, for the civil industry, for flower pots, for columns. And so, so there's, that, there's that end of the business. But uh, I've got some very clever people that are working here as well with me. So we are developing a scale model of a more mobile machine at the moment. Mm-hmm. We are getting a lot of inquiry for, say, council elements and government elements, which are amenities blocks, toilet blocks, uh, little things in parks where it's not viable, right? To, you either precast them and you take them to site and you hire them in position or you take a, mo- a mobile machine out. Sure, you've got to re-reference it two or three times, but then you're done and you're packed up and you're gone. So... I hope that answered the question, but I'm not, yeah, I'm not sold on a particular business model at the moment. Uh, and a lot of people do ask me, well, how are you going to make money out of this? And this being in a semi-fortunate position, I said, well, I haven't worked that out yet. <laughs> you know, I mean? I'm confident I can and I'm confident I will, but uh, yeah, it's still work in progress. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think any of those routes will require more printers ultimately. And so now... Yep. 
from my perspective, it seems you're boiling down what you want those more printers to be. Perhaps there's some changes you want to make from your current model. Yeah, I think so. So we are constructing, say, the second dwelling we are printing at the moment, which is close to the factory, uh, which is one that we took on actually before we went down to Victoria to print uh, for the TV show. But then obviously with that opportunity, I kept punting them back, which eventually uh, we punted them back about six months, which they weren't overly happy with. But we're mm -hmm. on site now. We've, we've printed that particular dwelling. Uh, guys are just sort of tidying up the site today. Uh, I can't even remember the question now. There you go. <laughs> just about... Uh... Oh, different, print, different models of printer. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, we'll upgrade. So this is the last job that the R and D printer will do. So we are we are constructing. And if anyone goes to our website, contour3d.com.au, uh, you will see the second generation of printer, which is a, still a gantry printer, but it's all aluminium, very lightweight, very component componentized, if that's a word, uh, in little sections. So we can we can just take that in with a standard forklift, assemble it. Our goal is an assembly within four hours. Uh, and that will, at the moment, we've constructed 25 metres worth of tracks. Uh, it's 14 metres wide, and it's, at the moment it's 3.4 metres high. Uh, but when we have got a, additional modules to go up to a second storey to go to 6.4 metres. So, so that machine, the framework for that is all constructed. We're starting on the elect well, we've started on the, ele on the electrical cabinet and the wiring this week. Uh, but unfortunately, I've got—I don't have a site crew at the moment either. So I've got some of my mechatronics engineers and electrical engineers, literally on site printing this the current dwelling. So look, we will have that completed and operating in the factory by the end of this year. Uh, so to go back to your other question, I think there is a market uh, for, for for, and it depends on your business model. But I think with our potential business model, there is a market for a gantry system. Uh, there is a market for a mobile machine, and there is obviously a market for an in-house printer. So whether we're taking on too much, that is yet to be determined, right? <laughs> uh, but we're always ones just to keep going, get it done, and get it to a level where it's it's phase one. You know what I mean? I, I'm I'm I am very quality focused when it comes to the print resolution. Uh, that's not even a customer-driven thing or a market-driven thing. I think that's more a me-driven thing. That's uh, that's what keeps me awake at night. Uh, so we will get, we will absolutely get there with that. Uh, but I think by probably March next year, we will have a working model of the uh, of the mobile machine, uh, which which will be a phase one, and then we'll sort of do some trials with that. But back to building our own machinery, and I've got some very high-end software developers starting next year, and I've got a couple on staff at the moment. We and talking about buying machinery, Australia being so remote, we are we do struggle with lead times for servo motors, for control systems, for componentry. So I want to eliminate all that. I want to build all our in, all our in-house control systems. I want to build all all our in-house machinery with readily available servo motors. With you know, so then we control we control our own destiny, you know, to mm -hmm. some degree, and then we can absolutely that and that is a very scalable business model. You know, I mean, people in Australia, and there's lots of people obviously coming into the market, but they 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 don't have the ability to build their own machines, uh, so they're going to struggle with uh, with scale. You know, yeah, you buy one machine off Cobot, you know, you pay a million dollars, and you've got to wait nine months to get it. You know, so then you want another one, and then you repeat the cycle, right? So hopefully, the way we're doing it 
will allow us just to scale up. If I've got to build a machine a week, I've got to build them, you know, 10 machines a month. That's just mathematics, right? That's just numbers, people, the talent. Uh, yeah, and if people want to go check out your website, the link is in the description of the video as well. Fantastic. Uh, so the business that you're shifting your attention from, you mentioned in the future, you'll be dedicating 80% of your attention to 3D printed construction. What are you shifting from? No, I currently do. So I, I, I've got a, and my other business is modular innovations. So, uh, and pro predominantly modular walls. So we, we cool. construct, uh, and same again, we're a full scale manufacturer. We're not really a builder or an installer. Uh, we manufacture composite noise wall panels and very, very high-end fencing, which looks like a masonry wall, uh, but we laminate fiber cement skins to, uh, to different cores and sound absorbing panels. And so very familiar with the manufacturing and the economies of scale sense that business employs 80 people. But I set that up a, a couple of years ago now. I sacked myself as CEO of that business. I, I employed a professional CEO. I put on a board of directors. So I, I want people to make decisions that don't involve me unless unless someone's died in the car crash, you know what I mean? <laughs> sure. And was that the first business you started? Uh, I've had a few smaller ones before that, but that this, yeah, this one, uh, we were the first, per we, we invented that category uh, within Australia. Uh, yeah, and we, we do ship quite a bit to the US occasionally, but we, we tend not to export anymore because the, the local market is large enough. So look, that business is at a point where it can run itself uh, and I can spend my time on, on the 3D side of things. So that business was, so that I know I understand correctly, prefabricated parts. So you had a factory somewhere and people would manufacture these pieces, which would then be constructed by other teams on site. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And we also sell to DIY for fence, for high end masonry look fencing and to commercial contractors for commercial noise walls on the side of uh, motorways or freeways. So we manufacture everything uh, here locally in Sydney, I've got my own factory, but we've also got warehouses got four warehouses around the country as well. So we do supply them with stock for your landscapers and your fences and your sort of DIY customer to come and pick up on a weekend or a weekday to construct themselves. So it's a good business. So we've got a commercial arm, uh, which deals in the civil and government side of things. And then we've got a domestic arm, which, uh, which deals with the fences, the landscapers and the, and the mums and dads. That's really fascinating. Prefab and 3D printed construction have some overlap in the people who are interested in them. Absolutely. Uh, but I haven't met anybody in 3D printed construction that comes from a prefab background, I don't think. Yep. So what was it that made you want to make the switch? Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. I, I can never sit still, I suppose. I've been doing this business now, my pre-modular walls for 19 years. And I've built it up, obviously, to, as a national business with 80 to 100 staff. Uh, and we we... We probably have 4,000 landscapes and fences on our books as well, which rely on us to manufacture the product for them to install, wow. for them to feed their family. So it got to the point where I'm, I, I'm still, my, my official title there now is Director of Innovation, whatever that means, you know. <laughs> so I've got an R&D guy, so we, I, I just sort of concentrate on the R&D that then he implements. Uh, so we still are innovating with that business, but uh, I'm, I was bored, if I'm honest. Uh, you know, I, I wanted, I wanted more. I, I really, I got to keep moving. You know, I, I just can't sit still. Uh, and I suppose where I got, I, I was into 3D desktop printing, uh, which I think our story's on our website. And I bought my daughter a 3D desktop printer in 2019 because she needed one for school. 
and I think she used it two or three times, and that was it. <laughs> so, and then, yeah, I sort of progressed from the 3D desktop printing, and I was fortunate that I could draw in 3D prior to that, so I had that skill set, and my coding's not great, but it's not bad. Uh, and then that sort of progressed into, well, what else can we do with this, you know, with the 3D technology? Because I look at the 3D desktop printer, uh, and it was, you know, it's, why can't you scale that up? And then I saw some, some of the videos on YouTube, probably some of your videos as well at that time. And that's where, that's where I started contacting the companies overseas that then I saw were doing this. And they were probably slightly in their infancy and, you know, as well and trying to sell machines to finance their operations. And, and that's when we took on the decision just to do it. You know, I said, come on, I can, I can, I can fund this. Let's, let's have a go. And my, 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 does your first, sorry. Huh? Does your first company have a catalog for 3D printed landscaping parts yet, or? No, it doesn't, but they will become one of my customers for, three, for Contour 3D, definitely. So look, uh, we're pushing with our material to get a, a recycled component, sort of upwards of 75% in the next sort of six to 12 months. Because uh, obviously like all in the world, there's a huge green push. So we do a lot in the, noise, in the commercial noise wall panel space. So I want to, I want to, with the robot printer here in the next sort of couple of months, develop a 3D printed noise wall panel, which is environmentally friendly, light, light enough weight to transport, uh, and I think then modular walls will become a very good customer of Contour 3D. So yeah, so yes, I'm yeah, my understanding. push them into each other, but I did set them up as two separate companies. So. It's my understanding that the parametric design of a wall can have acoustic properties to distort or uh, low dampen the noise potentially. Yeah, abs absolutely. You get what's called a refraction. Obviously, 19 years in the industry, I'm very across that sort of stuff. And that would be very appealing to the urban designers and the government bodies because we can't at the moment within modular, we produce very, very, very attractive flat panels, but we can't do parametric design. Or, but if someone wants a dolphin put on the wall or, you know, this is where the 3D uh, construction printing can really sort of come into its own. And I'm very fortunate then to have the existing contacts within that industry, not to have to go through all the hurdles. You know, we've got a very good reputation in, in that, within that sector. So I can just go, look, this is what we're doing. Give me a go. You know, I want a mile of noise wall and this is what we're going to do. So, so yeah, that, that will come as well. Yeah, just like municipalities are poking around looking for printed benches, printed bathrooms, I think people will start yep. to more as well and specifically ask for printed components in their backyard. Who knows? Uh, it's really interesting. So transitioning your old company to a new CEO, a new board, is that like selling a part of your soul or uh, giving away <laughs> a kid or something? <laughs> Yes, somewhat. It, 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 yeah, it, it was hard at, at, at the start. You know, you've got to let people, and fail is the wrong word, but you've got to let them make their own decisions and uh, say as long as it's not a car crash. Uh, but they're at that point now, it's been a few years, that they're all very invested. Uh, and part of that came with share equity as well within that company. So, so they are invested in the outcome of that. But yeah, it was tough, you know, and I still get pulled into things, uh, some things I don't want to get pulled into. But I recognize that that has to happen on occasion, right? You know, someone's, got to make, someone's got to make the final decision. And that's what I sort of stress to my kids, make a decision. You know, just, sometimes you just got to make a decision. You know, and don't, don't ponder. You know, if, you've, you know, if you're confident within yourself, just make the decision. I, I, I'll back you.
Yeah, it's a unique type of person that's able to build a business that can operate without them there on a day-to-day basis. Uh, certainly not the majority of founders, I don't think, do that. No, no, and I, you know what? There, there was a point where I thought that would never happen. Uh, but then you, you do realize there is some very good and talented people out there, you know, and you just gotta, you gotta keep looking. Don't give up, you know, don't, don't give up. You will find them eventually. Uh, you know, and we're, we're an innovative business in that side of things. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's okay to attract that sort of talent. You know, they, you're not just a, a sausage manufacturer. They do want to come and work with you. Uh, and that's, and that's, that's particular- like good advice. Yeah, and like, like the US, I mean, we've got a labor shortage here, particularly a construction labor shortage uh, and just a labor shortage in general. It's very hard to get good people. But with the 3D space, it's such an easy story to sell. You know, and it's not even a sale, you know, because it's, it's true. They can come here, they can see us building the machines, they can see the tech, you know, they can see that we're doing it. We just, we're doing it all in-house, you know, and that's very exciting to attract good talent. Yeah. And I think... People have just seen the narrative play over and over and over. Technology enters an industry, changes everything. So maybe that's part of why it's so viral and so magnetic towards people. Uh, It's just a paradigm that's played out so many times in other industries. Yeah, it has. And we've still got a, I'm, I do like to build. I like to make things, you know, and I don't, I've got a lot of people that I associate with that are, they shuffle numbers, right? And that's how they make their money. You know, what do you call them? The bankers and the wankers. But you need those people, right? <laughs> you do to a point. But I'm not uh, I'm not that person. Sure, I can shuffle spreadsheets and numbers and things. But that uh, that, that kills me. I, I hate sitting at my desk. And unfortunately, that's become a large part of my what I do and I have to do, right? You know, you've got to steer the ship. Uh, but I've got someone to steer the ship now at Modular Walls, which is very nice. Uh, but yeah, but I, there was a point where I never thought I would escape that. I, I really didn't. Uh, and that's and that's probably given me a different outlook to to the Contour 3D business as well. You know, I am looking to bring on, and I've got a few candidates uh, which are interested. Some very very high end. I wouldn't call them a CEO, but a general manager, I suppose, to run the day to day operations very very competently in line with the companies core values and mission, uh, you know, and then I can do the stuff which I'm good at. You know, I, I love being in the factory. I love knowing all the bits and the pieces. If a machine breaks down, let me help, you know. So, oh, and, and the innovation side of things, like I want to I want to push, I want to build the, uh, the mobile machine. You know what I mean? I want to do all those little things. And sure, then I've got to sit at night and I've got to do the admin stuff and I've got to sit in front of my computer and my desktop and, but, I don't know, maybe it's, so it, it has made me think differently about this. I'm going to set it up. I'm going to set Contour 3D up now from the start so it doesn't need me for the day-to-day stuff. You know, let me build the business. I've got some very, very good government contacts and contracts and, you know, let me do, give, it can afford me the time to do that, you know. But, but that's when you need good people, right? You need good talent. How do you attract the best talent? But, and you're right, you've got tech in the building industry. So are we a tech company that uses the builds or are we a building company that uses tech? You know, there's, it's, it's, a good, it's, a good, it's a good balance in between those two. So. I've heard the term deep tech thrown around a lot, which is just referring to hardware that requires lots of software to just a whole new technology oh. that needs all different kinds of things combined. Yep. Uh, yep. So I think that applies to you. 
Yeah, no, I'd certainly agree with that. And then people turn up on site, as you know, and go, wow, this is so simple. And you're like, oh, my God, you have just no idea. <laughs> and people, um, and they come to the factory and they see what we do at Modular and it's so automated and so easy. You know, it's, it's not, as you know. But you come here and people go, wow, that's so good and that's so easy. And it's just the, you know, the, the difficulty and the amount of software and the amount of coding and the amount of, you know, late nights to get something so simple on the front end, you know, you really appreciate what someone's got through, gone through on the back end. Uh, it's, that's, that's a skill, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it took me a full year to learn what a rotor stator was. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was making videos for a whole year on YouTube without no yeah. understanding. No, and I've learned some new words in the last two years as well, which, uh, yeah, some of them profanities, uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, so people walk in, they say it's so simple. And I say, genuinely, this is the hardest thing we have ever, I've ever done. And I just, when you just can't solve that one thing, you know, which, which sorts, sorts, sorts people out. Right. So that's why some people give up or they fail or they don't have the right industry contacts to, to source the answers. Uh, or, and then the knowledge to convert the answers into a solution you know, to, to the problem. Uh, no, so, so very fortunate. You know, I've had that past experience, and I can attract the right people now to sort of uh, really sort of push that along. Yeah, I think most people who have taken any engineering classes know nothing usually works perfectly the first try, especially if you built it yourself. So yeah. the uh, trial and error is like a rite of passage for the <laughs> tech world. <laughs> Yeah, and it's good fun, but then yeah, and you do get to a point where you've had enough of it. Like, ah, you know, version ten of this thing, you know, I can't, uh, and it's still not working. I remember, uh, I remember a Volker did say to me once. I said, "Oh, you're just printing out of a pipe," and he goes, "Listen," he goes, "That's version twelve of that pipe." <laughs> yeah, and I never forget that. And then I think we're on about version ten. You know. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, just just to get that fluidity correct, and the back pressures, and the lack of air bubbles forming, and the, you know, and now we're working on a two-part head for the robot, and uh, you know, and, and there's challenges in that. Why does why is everyone else's two-part head so expensive? Why did it take them two years to develop it? Uh, and unless you're doing that, you 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 understand now why it does. You know, so it's it's there's a there's a lot involved. Yeah. Do you feel the hundred fifty thousand dollar extruder head? Is a reasonable price for just the little tip of the <laughs> visually no <laughs> so but there's obviously some smarts behind it but look whether we buy one of volker or someone else or uh or we continue the development on our own we've got i've got very close with version one so but then it, it's it also comes down to and i never used to be this way i used to do everything myself you know and which which say sometimes hinders your progress but if you can afford it is it easier just to buy it uh for that small component and move on you know and then start creating products six months before you normally would probably maybe so so i'm undecided i can probably answer that question for you in another six months time i mean you're still in the r d phase like when tesla was where you're at they were using a lotus elise uh, and they yeah. just stripped stripped it out so correct uh, there's no jam in that no no, so yeah, so 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 maybe you know, yeah, I, I'm unsure. I, I may purchase one, but I'm probably leaning more towards I will continue the development on our own. So, so therefore, we own the IP and we own the uh, uh, we own the process, I suppose. 
I hope it's not boring for you to discuss, but uh, I'm curious how you selected the board for your old company. Oh, no, not at all. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I, it was always a self-funded company, uh, which, which, again, we, we grew organically. We were growing very fast, uh, probably 20, 20% a year, 25% a year in the early days. But obviously, as your revenue streams increase, it's harder to grow at that percentage. Uh, so I did start to look around. I didn't need the money, but I wanted the experience. So I started to look around for uh, private equity funding, I suppose. Uh, mm. And the and the, the funding's always nice. I paid off a loan for my factory that I built. <laughs> so, so yes, it had an upside in that. But then I wanted the experience as well. I wanted someone with that big end of town. How do I go from, you know... The size of a size of a grape to the size of a watermelon, you know, and do it very quickly because I don't want to wait. I don't want this to be a twenty-year venture. I want this to happen in five years. So I, I, I interviewed quite a lot of private equity guys, uh, and I ended up going for an independent guy that used to work in the big end of town, and he sort of scaled back to having his own small fund, and he took on say three or four small, uh, smaller, medium-sized companies uh, to sort of help them expand. So that comes with positives and negatives again. You know, now, even though I'm still way in excess the majority shareholder, you've still got other people, you know, that you're consulting over decisions. And whether you can ultimately override that decision, uh, still you want a Knights of the Roundtable sort of thing. You want everyone to be on the same page. Uh, so that was, a, that was one of the board members. I had a long-time employee who'd been there for more than 10 years at that stage. Uh, so he came on as a board member as well. Uh, obviously very invested in the company, very, very knowledgeable, knowledge that you can't afford to lose uh, or would have been very hard to replace at that stage. And then I also, we shopped around for a CEO, someone that had been in the large, large end of town. Uh, but then it's hard to find someone, I didn't want to become a corporate juggernaut either or a corporate entity that can't make decisions, that can't do anything because they're constrained with the corporate hierarchy so, so that so we we eventually found that person, and we've had our ups and downs, and you know we have board meetings now once a month, and everyone you know, and we've also got we put on a professional, as opposed to just an accounts department, you know, with uh, talented people, but not a CFO. So we put on a CFO as well. So it's it's hard to do that and spend that spend that money, I suppose, waiting for the investment to then return, because you're employing people that are used to earning lots and lots of money, right? You know? Uh, and to attract that talent, you've got to pay that money. Uh, so, and there's, there's obviously a high hibernation period there where you're paying that money, uh, and you're waiting for the actions that we decide as a, as a as an overall business to to grow to come back. So, so they were challenging times, like to like to set up four warehouses, you know, to staff those warehouses up. Each one's got sales guys, factory guys, warehousing, you know, a million dollars worth of stock. You know, twenty thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars worth of forklifts and things, and hundred grand's worth of racking. So there's there's hard decisions, right? But that's where if you've got someone that's more used to that, and that's when it comes back to sure, I can do the numbers, I can do the spreadsheets, and I can go, yeah, this probably does work. But you need that you need that sort of push from somebody else that then goes, no, nah, I've done this before. We can see this happening. You know, let's do it. You know, and this is what we're going to do. And you, it is almost like having a personal trainer, you know, someone behind you, <laughs> just, just, just constantly putting. Mm -hmm. But we still have our arguments and we have our disagreements. And I kicked a hole in the boardroom wall a couple of months ago, <laughs> you know, and that's not me, right? So to get me to that point, you know? so but 
is everyone there for the right reason? Sure. You know, does everyone want the same thing? Sure. You know, but it just shows everyone's got their line in the sand as well. You know, but fight. I want them to fight. I even say that to the guys in the factory. You know, I know every single person's name. I know what their wives are called. I know what they do on a weekend. And I have lunch with them a couple of times a week. You know, and that's where, that's where I would say some of the guys that then come from this industry, they don't. I mean, I started on a factory floor, right? You know, I know what it's like. I don't have an us and them culture. And even though some people don't mentally, but they still won't. You know, at the Christmas party, I'm going to sit with the guys. You know, I sit with these. I, you know, I sit with you guys all week. You know, I don't want to look at you at a Christmas party. You know, I'll go, I'll go and talk to the guys on the factory floor. You know, that's, so I think you need that good spread of. You know, you need to be, and it has to be genuine as well. It genuinely is. You know, I really want to know what their name is when a new guy starts. I'll make sure I go out there, I introduce myself, you know, and I write his name on my hand so I don't forget it. <laughs> so I think that's very important. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, that's probably the happiest way to run a business uh, when you can integrate, like, almost a family feel. At some point, if you have a 1,000 employees or 10,000 employees, uh, how many names can you know? It's tricky. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it, it is. But and, and even at that point, I don't think it's remembering names. It's remembering the person, you know, or their fate, sure. what they do, you know. And it's you know they work on the like Tesla. You know, he works on the he works on the motor line. He works on the, you know. And I think you can be very good at good at remembering that stuff because that's important to them. You know, it's important to me, but you know, it's even more important to them. But they're not just a number. Leading from the trenches. Absolutely. Jeez. Do you know what? I'll give you a good analogy here. Someone, uh, probably 10 years ago, I had an old school sales manager, you know, and he'd been with me since the start. And it was time for him to move on, retire. And, you know, uh, and we, had a, we had a factory foreman who was, a, he was very talented, but he was prickly, right? You know, I heard the guys saying once downstairs, they go, oh, just piss Greg off in the morning and he'll leave you alone all day. You know, and that was their mentality. And I was like, no way. So I spent a week on the factory floor and then we had a chat with him up in the office. My old school sales manager who'd employed thousands of people over his years, he goes, listen, Greg, I'm going to tell you something. You know, he goes, you're in the trenches in World War One. He goes, you blow the whistle and he goes, you run, you've got to look behind yourself. He goes, this guy blows the whistle, he's going to run and he doesn't have to look behind himself because he knows everyone's following. You know? And I've never forgot that and, it's, and it means a lot to... The guys, uh, no one's better than them. No one's, everyone's a imp really important part in the in the wheel, in the cogs. You know, it can't operate without anybody. So, so I, think that's, I think that's really important. You know, you can't just, and, that, that, and that's what goes back to what I said, I don't like that corporate juggernaut where you are literally just a number, doing your job, punching out the figures. Uh, to bring it back to, since we're on a string of Tesla analogies, uh, yeah. I know he borrowed, Elon borrowed some SpaceX employees to design the Model 3, uh, sure. and they did it in like some crazy short amount of time, sure. but would you ever lean on the talent that you've worked so hard to acquire, uh, your CFO and your other team members, in some roles in your 3D printed construction, you could bill out hours or something? Uh, I, I don't think so from that point of view, uh, not from a... Not from a uh, a governance point of view or like a, a, a CFO, CEO sort of point of view. Uh, I'll take that on myself at the moment. Uh, I, do have a, I do have a financial controller here at Contour now, uh, but she's a bit multi, 
talented, obviously, or multitasked. She's answering the phones. She's doing the admin. Yeah, she's doing all the finances and the R&D, you know, uh, proposals for the government to get money back off them. Uh, but then today, you know, she's also, because we don't have a site crew and I've got all the engineers out on site, she's out there on site with her laptop, working from site, cooking them dinner, or cooking them lunch. You know? Nice. Uh, yeah. So, but... What, the talent I did borrow from the other business, I had a very uh, a, a very good machine builder and control system guy. So he was all integrated. Um, before he came on board at Modular five years ago, it was either me doing that, you know. Then I'm like, oh, I haven't got time to fix a machine, you know. But then I had to have time, right? Because we stopped production. So oh, we get we get, we get a consultant in, you know, an electrical guy, and you plug in, and he'd find him three taking three hours because he didn't know the machine or the process, you know. So so anyway, so I employed this guy within modular walls five years ago, maybe. Uh, and we've built a lot of machines there in the interim. We've automated a lot of stuff. We do all our own control systems and wiring and cabinets. Uh, so then he'd, he'd had enough of the day-to-day there as well. And it was probably above him now that everything's working, just doing the maintenance. So we did employ a maintenance guy, you know, a maintenance engineer that where his job is just doing minor, minor repairs, minor things minor fixes and maintenance. So then I did bring that guy across to Consor 3D. So yes, I did lean on that talent, absolutely. So the CNC skills required for cabinetry transfer over? Oh, definitely, yep, 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 yep. No, yeah, oh, it was obviously, yeah, there's, there's, dif- there's differences there, but it was there's enough knowledge there to, to work it out. Uh, and I hate reading, right? I read because I have to, not because I want to. But I have read more manuals on CNC machines <laughs> and studies and things than I ever ever want to read in my life ever again. Uh, that was. You hear a lot of engineering-minded people saying that they hate reading. Oh. It's interesting. <laughs> I think you're just done with it. You know? And as you get older, your eyes aren't so good anymore, even with glasses. <laughs> you know? I think I even had my PA read something to me one day because I was just absolutely cooked from reading. <laughs> It says uh, you went to Manai High School. You skipped college? I did. I went to yeah, Manai High School. Uh, yep, so I, I did that. I did all my stuff sort of post, post that, machine building and fabrication and engineering. Uh, I, I don't know why. Uh, yeah, I just I couldn't wait to get out of school at that point. You obviously time. didn't need it. You have a successful business with, I mean, who you go to college to learn how to make money, have a job. Sure. You got that. Yep, yep. Yeah, it's interesting. I've got kids of high school age now, though, but I'm pushing them to go to university or to college. You know, just to, but did it? No, did I need that? No. Am I? I think if I had to give you another analogy, I'm more Rocky Balboa than Apollo Creed. You know, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm a street fighter. But I've, yeah, I've done very well in that regard. But uh, and and with time and with experience, some of the experience you don't want, right? But uh, you know, it's all experience and it builds who you are. I think I've got a very, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm quite well-rounded nowadays, and that's why I'll take on, I built Modular to that point where I handed it over, and I'll build Contour to the point uh, before I sort of hand that over to a CEO or, or somebody else because I, I want my flavour in, in, the, in, the, in the place. I don't want it corporate. I don't want it someone else's. I want it to be my flavour, and that's going back to what you said about Modular probably why I kicked a hole in the boardroom wall was we were, it wasn't my flavor. You know what I mean? It's just, I'm not, I believe people are people, you know, and you just gotta, 
it doesn't matter who they are. You just got to talk to everyone the same way, and you can do the, you can do your deals and your things. But just I know I try to do everything with transparency, you know, because if someone then thinks you're keeping something from them, you know, then it, it just doesn't bide well for you. And if I am keeping something from someone, I'll generally say I'm, I can't tell you. You know, I'm not in a position to tell you at the moment. You know, but at least there's no whispers and there's no sort of rumors, and I hate that stuff. Uh, sure. Uh, it's not productive. No. So after high school, what was the first job you took? Or did you just start your own business immediately? No, yeah. So I was uh, I was into cars and I used to race I used to race cars and open wheelers and cool. Uh, so I went uh, I was a mechanic straight out of school. So I did my I did four years of mechanic, uh, got my mechanic Great. ticket degree. Uh, kept racing, and then I went to Europe for five years to work, and I was doing different things. Uh, I was working in France for four of those years, doing holiday repping, believe it or not. So, the, so I used to run uh, holiday resorts, different ones throughout France for, uh, for, for an English company. So at any one time during the summer season, we could have 500 people uh, within our control on site. So, so at the age of 21, uh, 22, I, I did. I had 15 staff under my control on a, on a holiday resort. And that was, no one was there to help you fly by the seat of your pants again. Uh, and you had to work it out. So I think that gave me, I've never thought about that before, actually. But probably looking back, that does make you very well-rounded, you know, because you, you were living on site. You had to, 24 hours a day, you were responsible. It's, uh, and then when customers had issues, they had you know, injuries, you'd have to take them to the hospital and translate. You'd have to go to the police station. You'd have to, you just have to work it out because head office was in the UK. You were in France. Uh, and then after that, so in between that time, I used to come back for three months of the year when the, when the holiday season wasn't operating in Europe. Uh, then I did engineering. Uh, I used to work for my dad building. Uh, my dad does composite roofing, uh, insulated roofing. So I used to work for him building production lines in those three months. I could just turn up. I could work for three months and then go back overseas and nice. continue my holiday repping. Uh, so I continued with that. And then when when I'd come back, I thought, right, I'm getting too old for this. You know, it's uh, traveling around Europe and not having a fixed abode <laughs> as such. Uh, I did come back to Australia and I started Modular Walls. Yeah, so and I, how long ago was that? I started another company first, actually, which ran for a year. Okay. Uh, renova- I was renovating houses uh, and flipping them, I suppose. So I was doing everything from the plumbing to the wiring to the things, to the <laughs> sort of trying to wow. make as much money as, my, as I can doing it myself, uh, framing, roofing, plastering. So, uh, And then I started... Uh, that, that was essentially, that's how I started Modular Wall. So one of the final houses I was renovating, uh, the council would not let me construct a masonry wall at the front of the house because there was uh, underground drainage services running there. So I, I, I built the first mod, modular wall uh, out of composite panels, uh, put it at the front, got around the council approvals because it was modular, it was removable. Uh, and I had a lot of people sort of knocking on the door going, wow, what's that? You know, that's really cool. Can you make me one? Uh, then I went on a show called The New Inventors with that particular product, and then TV again. I, I got loads of traction. So I went from a single person uh, operating the factory on my own, making the module walls to, uh, say, 80 people today in sort of five ware- four warehouses in a production facility. So, mm, and a- what a classic story. The, uh, <laughs> the municipality gets in your way, you innovate around it, and then people start banging down the door to get the product. It's great. Yeah, it was good. So, yeah, and again, I, I, it's, yeah, I, 
stumbling over my words to even think what, how that process actually, how it went from that one person up to where it is today. But I think it is just that never give up, never, you know. And I only said to my kids the other night because I, I was so tired at one point, you know, this week, and I was so tired. I said, listen, you know, you, you need to sleep. I got to a point with Modular where we were that busy and I had to fix machinery on the night time. I was that tired. I remember driving through a red light, you know, on the way home. And I just driving. Uh, so it's, there is no substitute, unfortunately, for the, maybe there is, and maybe I'm the idiot, you know, but there's no substitute for hard work. Uh, so what age are your kids now? Uh, I have uh, two 12-year-old twins. I had to think then, and a 13-year-old daughter. So the twins... So you're not really thinking about college yet, (laughs) seriously, but... uh, No. If Just to imagine, I guess, for a minute, what would they need to convince you of to not go to school? Uh, I see the twins go to high school next year. The other one's in, uh, obviously, 14 next year. Sorry, not high. Of course, they're going to go to high school and graduate high school to not go to university after that. Yeah, okay, okay. Uh, I I, I suppose a business plan... Yep, uh, and one that they can convince me on and one that they can be absolutely drilled on and still come up with the answers. Even if they're not r- the right answers, you have to be, you have to have an answer. You know? and, I, and I encourage people to do that here. You know, drill me. I don't want to be right. You know, if, I, if, I'm, if there's an avenue where I'm wrong, that's an avenue for improvement, right? So it's probably, probably the same with the kids. I want them to really knuckle down, work hard, but work smart and think about it. Uh, and, I've, and I've offered them to help them with a small business in the interim. You know, and I'll, I'll fund that, obviously. You know, obviously, I want them to make money, and I don't care if they don't make money. Sometimes it might be better if they fail and learn a lesson. Uh, but I want them to do something before that point of college as well. You know, I want them to have a little side business. I want them to, you know, my son wants to get vending machines, you know, but then it'll be up to him to go around to the factories. And I want him to understand the business case behind a vending machine. What is your return? How many Mars bars a day do you have to sell? You know, and I really, I do try to teach them that stuff. Uh, and I wouldn't say my dad didn't teach me that because maybe he did. Maybe I just didn't realize it, you know, because my dad's a very successful business person. You picked but, it up somewhere. Yeah, sure. Yeah, must, I must stop along the way, but I've really got a conscious effort now to sit my kids down and really have an hour a week and teach them that stuff and make them watch a share trading video that they don't want to watch, you know, but it just... Because mm, so, no, obviously you want to, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, I want my, to know my kids are going to succeed or have the right platform to succeed in life. And it's that don't, don't worry about what anyone else tells you, you know. And, and I suppose that's, I've never worried about what anyone, even if someone is perceived as smarter than you, you know. What is smarter, you know? It's, I don't know. They're the guys that don't get there. They're the guys that will give up, you know what I mean? I don't know, and that's not the right thing, and that doesn't go for everybody, and I shouldn't say that, you know, but it's that I just want them to be that an attitude. I don't care if you're in the room with the Prime Minister, the President, you know, or the janitor, you know, it's you have the same conversation. It's, you take the same, and it just it does take you a lot of time to realise if you shut your mouth, you learn more, you know, just let, <laughs> obviously you don't want to be in front of someone that will just talk at you for hours and hours and hours on end and you get nowhere, but... You know, listen to what people have to say. And even if you listen to 100 people and you take one thing out of that that improves what you do, then I, I've, I tend to do that nowadays. So I tend to have more that mentality where I'll stop and listen as opposed to, no, nah, I know better, get out of my way. You know, I'm going to do it myself. 
<laughs> well, don't do that too much today because I'm trying to get you to talk for a podcast. Oh no, that's that's okay. No, you've, no you're doing you're doing great. You're making my job easy today. No, you've given me so much, so this is I want to I want to give back. So, yeah, so you're uh, you talked about your business, and I guess another question: Do you give your kids like an allowance or something like? chores or so, like simple stuff like that yeah they do yeah they've got a uh, they've got one of these kitty credit cards nowadays uh, so you've got to load money onto it so oh wow uh, so every time so they can go on their phones and apple pay and all the rest of it so but that's uh yeah we do load money onto that so they get whatever ten dollars a week uh, just sure. allowance to buy their own clothes nowadays or whatever but then they can also make additional money by emptying the dishwasher putting the garbage out you know, and all the little jobs. And if they want money now, if somebody wants to spend 20 bucks on robo dollars or whatever they call them, on these stupid games, you know, they've got to earn that, right? So I, I had a job at 13, pulling and you know, selling newspapers on a Sunday morning for four hours. So I certainly had to, had to go down that road, had to push. Uh, so I want them to have the same because it's easy to give kids money when you've got enough disposable income. It's easy just to give them the money, and it, it is. It's too easy to do that, you know. But I don't want them to have that mentality. I want them to grow up with the value of money, and that's why I want mm -hmm. them to have their own business uh, from a young age. Not not something they'd continue on with potentially, but I said I will help you. You know, I'll give my time. You know, to help you do that. Uh, so we'll, we'll and did you grow up with chores? Yep. Yep. Looking back, I certainly did. I put the garbage out every single week. You know, I washed the cars. That was my job. Just two cars a week. Uh, and I think I used to get $50 a week, which is probably a lot of money back in the 90s. Right. So, uh, so, so I did. Yeah. Yeah, I did. So was Karate Kid very relatable for you when you saw wax on, wax off? <laughs> yeah. I got very good at washing cars. <laughs> very good at washing cars. Taught you how to kick holes in boardrooms or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that was the one and only time. I can't say the only time because I'm still here, right? <laughs> I'm sure there's lots of fun boardroom times ahead, but uh, <laughs> but that's when I've with some very intelligent people. But what makes them more in? What makes them? And I, what, and I say this to them because they can watch this podcast. You know, what makes their point of view any more? any more better that's the wrong word what makes their point of view like challenge you and that's very healthy yeah challenge me but but i guess the point where yeah i don't I can't remember why i kicked the hole i think it was i think it came down to an irrational conversation you know and you get to the point where you can't negotiate with a terrorist you know he's got to shoot him in the head so i think, it, I think that's the point it sort of got to in that one but no no i don't i don't want anyone to never approach not be able to approach me either and i say that to the guys at work my door is always open you know, if it's if it's a if you feel that you need to see me, then it's obviously important to you. Then you can come and tell me. You know, that's and that, that's always important to me. And I hope my kids are the same. You know, I, you tell me the truth, and you're not in trouble. You know, you don't tell me the truth, and you lie to me, and that's when. That's when you're in trouble. I had a boss who said that uh, at the Federal Reserve. He was like this <laughs> older guy in his sixties, all white hair, and. Uh, I went into the office like one time, took advantage of the policy. I was like shaking. <laughs> it's almost scarier when they say they have an open door policy for you. I don't know why. Yeah. And how did that go for you? Uh, you know, I don't know if I've told this story on the podcast, but it was really stupid of me. I, at the time I got my first 3d printer. I was interested in 3d printed construction sure. and I 
saw articles that uh, you could 3D print a, a weapon. So every day when we went into the job, it was like an internship I got through my school. We would uh, go through metal detectors. And the head of my department, who was, we were doing construction projects, he was also the head of the security department. So all these cops with, like, MP serious weapons, there's $6 billion cash in the basement of the building. Uh, so I go into his office and I say, listen, I have a 3D printer and I could print a you-know-what at home and bring it in piece by piece over a week or two, and it would be a serious security threat for the uh, – for the building so you guys should like seriously consider this look into it maybe print one and shoot it in the range you guys have downstairs oh, yeah uh he didn't let me test <laughs> a print one in the range but they let me do a little one-page report to their police squad and nothing ever came of it i think he thought i was a little crazy that so we had said so we say if i was that guy i would have said I, 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 actually if i was you i would have just walked in his office and put one on the desk <laughs> <laughs> And uh, this is where we had the, the Prime Minister of our country visiting uh, our manufacturing facility. He's a local member, uh, and he, d he does a lot of newscasting, obviously. Uh, so he wanted to broadcast from a, from a manufacturing facility. So I know him, so he rang up and said, can I come down? I said, sure. You know, so then this was during COVID when there were all the check-ins and things, and he had the QR codes. So I said to my graphic girl, we did a, uh, we did a little QR code on an A4. I said, if, if he's got a check-in, right, we don't make the Prime Minister check-in. Uh, we put the QR code for uh, Rick Astley, you know, never going to mm -hmm. up, never going <laughs> to. So, so I was going to Rick roll the Prime Minister. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> but that's my flavour, right? Where you know, if I said that to my CEO or the board, oh, my God, they would have had a conniption, right? You can't do that. You can't. Do oh, I know the guy. It's good fun, right? <laughs> yeah. So at this stage, what does Contour th uh, 3D need the most to grow? Uh, probably more people at the moment. Uh, I'd, I'd say we, we are constructing the next major project we have for the new machine, the new gantry that we've almost completed, is we're building a three-bedroom, single-story house uh, in Victoria for, one of, for Simmons mm -hmm. Homes, who are one of Australia's largest uh, sort of home builders. So after we, I think that will be, will be then a proof of concept for the new machine. Uh, then I really want to scale up in regards to, say, the software engineers, uh, more boots on the ground in regards to fabricators, uh, sort of con engineers that can really then drive the scale. And that's where, I, that's where I'll put my sort of efforts into it then. How, what do we have to do? What is the business model? What is the business plan to scale? You know, and sometimes without, without, obviously there's a construction market there, there's a home building market, but is it just a buzz at the moment? Will the buzz taper off if we invest 30, 40, 50 million dollars into scaling? Are we, you know, is that, is that the right decision? Uh, and then sometimes you can't make that decision, you know, accurately because it's all pie in the sky stuff, right? You know, the, the, will the market take this up? You can, you can do small scale testing, which we have, and small scale market penetration and you know, surveys and that type of thing. But uh, yeah, I've got to really make that decision and get the right people on board, uh, probably some equity funding, some VC funding uh, to really sort of scale. I, I don't want this to be, I don't want to be a one-off builder. You know, I, I really want to, if we're going to do this, I want to really take this and dominate the country. 
uh, and, and for the good as well. Uh, you know, homelessness is one of my passions. And I know there's a lot of talk about 3D printing, solving some affordability crisis and social housing. And yeah, there's lots of social housing that needs to be built in Australia. The government are on board with that. I fortunately know some of the right people. Uh, so that won't be a difficult market. Uh, and I, but I think it's more speed than cost. Uh, and that goes back to that, how, back to my thing I said originally, well, how are we gonna make money out of this? Uh, but I really do want to, if I can, if I can leave my mark you know, and for my kids, how do we help solve some affordability crisis and whether that's 3D printing, which I'm, that's what I'm pushing towards, obviously. And I hope to drive those costs down in efficiencies and material to make that a reality. You know, I really do. Whether that's achievable, I don't want to be, come on the podcast you know, or on the internet like a lot of other people and go, we're going to do this. We're going to cut housing costs by 70%. And we're going to let, I mean, that's Nirvana, right? Everyone, let's do that. If you can do it, let's do it. But what is the plan to do that? You know, is that through materials or through labor? Is it through efficiencies or is it a combination of everything? Hopefully it's a combination of everything or more robotics or more, you know, how, how do we get two people on site to cut that labor component down and make, provide the efficiencies? And, and that, that goes into me then employing some very intelligent people that are smarter than me, you know, to put more robotics into the systems, to automate more of the systems, to look, have look ahead 3D cameras that are scanning where they're going to, to to be correcting the machine and the pump, you know, and the mortar or the geopolymer or whatever that solution ends up being eventually. So, so the first home you did, I would imagine with all the filming and everything, you don't want to leave too much up to the inspector's whim. Were you able to print in an area that doesn't require permits? No, no, <laughs> this was on national television and it was a permitted building. Yep. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it was, yeah. So it was, what it was, uh, they had their main, they had their main house, and this was considered. They were calling it a pool cabana, uh, which uh -huh. which was a it was a th seventy square meters. It was a very it was a house. It was a mini house. It had a kitchen, bathroom, living, dining, yeah. all the rest of it. Uh, but no, it still had. They are selling those houses afterwards, so every single structure on that had to be permitted. Uh, and the Wasn't that challenging. Uh, Slightly, uh, but then we overcame it with a with, with an engineering solution. Uh, we, we had we core filled where we didn't have to core fill some of the walls. They didn't actually want the wall fill the wall sections uh, core filled, but to to get over it, we did core fill columns in certain locations. You know, then then that seemed to satisfy uh, the, their requirements, and then it, it got signed off, and it was all fine. And um, we're doing the same in the on the print at the moment, uh, which is down the road, which the guys are packing up on today. That is a habitable dwelling that has to be permitted. So I spoke to the certified. So we had that engineered. I gave that to the certifier. It went through the went through the the process. Uh, you know the governance, uh, and I spoke to the certifier yesterday. So he's coming out next week to do a further inspection, uh, and that will that will be a permitted building as well. Wow, that's terrific. It's yeah. really a big difference. Oh, absolutely. I don't, I don't want to build anything that, you know, I, I mean, this would have been, we couldn't have done it, right? We, we couldn't have done it, particularly on national television, uh, unless they were going to demolish it afterwards because they had to sell it. It's, uh, it's, no, so it had to be done. And that's part of that mantra of, I suppose, people are just people. If you get to the right people, you get to the right person, you know, and you can you can explain your case and your diligence. I suppose like we are super diligent. You know what I mean? And 
you've got the right engineers on the board, and I've had a structural engineer on board from the very from the very beginning as well, a very sort of forward thinking, sort of you'll find a solution sort of guy. So you need the right nice. people. You need to have you need to have then their confidence, right? It's, uh, uh, I think it's a combination of a lot of things, but the, like the US, the standards I don't feel will catch up or I'm told won't catch up here for another 18 months uh, as, a, as a minimum. So in the meantime, we've just got to get those independent uh, evaluations of the structures, which is part of the process. Yeah, that gives you a good amount of time to keep working on the printer and implement the changes you want to do, build the three new systems. Yeah, correct. Yeah, and I'm sure I've, I've been approached by a few people to to sort of where it's appropriate to give uh, some input into those uh, standards discussions. Uh, yeah, I'm very happy to do that. Yeah, I saw they just released ISO ASTM 52939, which is like qualification principles for printed concrete. Yep. Now we're really getting into the weeds here, but. Yep. Yeah, no, no, but that's true. The people that hold the knowledge at the moment, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, a builder's got a license, a carpenter's got a license. When you get concrete poured out of a truck, you've got to take a, a test sample. But yeah, the people that hold the knowledge at the moment within the 3D sector don't have that. It's the people, right? So I can't, I can't hand a machine to someone and then know without training that, they're, that they can print that house effectively, I suppose. But yeah, so that's where you're right. There's probably got to be a qualification standard and a, and a this and a training and a... It can't be can't be left up to a single person on site. But yeah, I'm sure that's a big uh, factor in your decision making on the business model. You decide having to train people or operating printers yourself. Training is tough, and customer service is tough. Absolutely, it is. Yep, absolutely. Yep, and that, that goes back to the tech being very simple again. Hopefully, in the construction of a printer being very simple in the methodology. Uh, so we've got to put that much back end work and software into it to make it so simple that a that a very that an intelligent I mean builders are builders they build buildings right they 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 got they got a level of intelligence there that they can operate the technology side of things as well they'll be very good on the on the on the reinforcement side of things on the concrete side of things but how do you make that tech so simple you know that it's it's bulletproof i suppose yeah i think i saw a cool project in california where they had a general union labor doing pretty much all of the tasks like placing the plumbing and stuff electrical rentals on top of yep. so if you can replace expensive subcontractors with sure. uh with untrained labor where you have your trained print operator and then a few people who just have a punch list of when to place the horizontal reinforcement or yep. those things that seems like Terrific. No, no, and that's absolutely on our radar. So I just want to automate as much as possible. And uh, even placement of reinforcement, or we've got some other ideas that doesn't involve uh, physical horizontal reinforcement, uh, which, we can inf which we can build into the machine and the next version of tech. Uh, so we'll, we'll get there. But no, I don't just want to build a dumb printer either. <laughs> you know, I want, to really, I want to really stretch the envelope of what can, what can be done and continue to stretch it. You know, is Nirvana, whoever reached Nirvana, you should never reach Nirvana, right? You just gotta, it's a continual journey. <laughs> it's going to keep pushing as tech evolves. If you, uh, if you can press a button and a house appears and nobody has to be there or look at it or touch anything, uh, I'll be in Nirvana. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, possibly. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, true. No, but that's where people come on site and they go, oh, what do you do? How complex it is? Said, Nothing. You just press the green button. Uh, and that's ideal. You know, that's all you want to do. Find a tenant. Exactly. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so, no, look, it's an exciting space. And I think it's really, it's really made me give me a new energy in, in a business sense. You know, I really want to. And it's not about. I mean, every business has to make money, right? We want to make lots of money, <laughs> but I really, but I really want to push the boundaries of technology and feel uncomfortable when I come into work on a daily basis. You know, I don't want to sit behind a desk and count numbers. As I say, I want to feel uncomfortable. You know, that, that, that we're not there, but, but we're striving to. You know, for the, for the ver- it's version two. You've got to be there with a version because you've got to keep doing it. You've got to keep. But yeah. I don't want to. That, that, that's a bit that excites me, I suppose. Uh, to keep pushing, find a solution. But then, what is? And I say to the guys, what does a printer look like in ten years' time? You know, and yes, the technology might not be there to make that to envisage that yet. But how do we? How do we get there? How do we get there sooner? How do we get there faster? So, uh, I don't want to. I don't want a ten-year plan. You know, that bores the shit out of me. You know. <laughs> Uh, I want a, I want a 12 month plan, a rolling 12 month plan that we keep pushing, you know, and we keep developing, we keep innovating. Uh, as long as then you've got a back end that can sustain that, right? You can't be a you can't be a perpetual innovator that's not making money on the front end because that doesn't that doesn't work either, you know. So it's a Amazon seems to be doing that with their like negative PE ratio and. Yep. Okay. <laughs> yep. No, so no, no. You got you got to make money. You got to keep striving forwards. You got to keep innovating. I think to stay ahead. Sounds like a good plan to me. Mm. Is there anything we didn't cover? Uh, let me have a look. I did put a few bullet points down. Uh, Great. Uh, oh, uh, just, just, I guess I'll tell you something. So look, yeah, as, as part of the 3D uh, business model, and I won't call it a 3D concrete or mortar business model, I am looking uh, to purchase a thermoplastic printing system as well. Because uh, as part of an overall 3D business, I would like to incorporate some thermoplastics within that. Uh, and there is, there are companies in Australia that are developing or that by the end of this year, they will have a machine that can that can generate or manufacture the 3D pellets here in Australia. So we're not having to import that, and you can get almost 100% recycled components within this 3D pellet, uh, uh, PETGs and so forth, ABSs. But th- there's a very good market, I feel, in that as well. And, it, and it's not so much just the market. I think it is partially the tech as well. Uh, there's a little bit of crossover in the tech between the concrete and the thermoplastics, but there's also things that we can incorporate into the house developments, you know, with the thermoplastic abilities as well. And if we're using recycled thermoplastics, where we're, we're, we're maybe printing some reinforcement or we're doing things or we're printing things, elements to support the slab, you know, so we can physically print the slab at the same time. So there's a lot of different things that I feel that we could do with the thermoplastic capability, which is mm-hmm. quite exciting again. Uh, and obviously there's a lot of outside of the home construction market, there is a lot of uh, applications for councils and uh, governments for recycled 3D printed plastic. 
So, so that is something that I'm actively looking into at the moment, which uh, is an overall 3D business, which I think we will proceed with. Uh, and then uh, you would have, if you've had a look at our website or one of the projects we are taking on also, we, I did purchase uh, with some family, a family member of mine, my sister, uh, 122,000 square metres in a regional town in New South Wales, which is called Dubbo. It's, it houses the largest zoo, I think, in one of the largest zoos in Australia. Uh, wow. I've got a few other tourist attractions. It was, it's one of those towns which was sort of built in the 80s, forgotten about, and that's having a bit of a resurgence, particularly with COVID. And, uh, people are not travelling overseas as much. They're travelling interstate. So I've got 122,000 square metres of land. Uh, it is zoned for holiday park. Uh, and it is, it is opposite the zoo, it's down the road from the observatory, down the road from the winery, so the location is perfect. So we're having a master plan drawn up at the moment, which will incorporate, I don't want a caravan park, I don't want tents, you know. Uh, there's enough of an industry in Dubbo to support uh, cabins. So I want to do some really cool, funky 3D printed cabins. So maybe 100, 100, 200 cabins, you know, for a 3D printed holiday park. So we're probably starting the civil works on that next year, which is which is the site drainage and, and other elements. Uh, and then we will move into the construction phase probably in 2024. And hence the reason as well, I think, a gantry system. For what I want to print, a double-storey cabin, a beehive or something, or see if we can come up with something different, pods. Uh, I don't think a gantry-style system is the best, you know, to... Uh, to facilitate that type of construction. You know, I want 20 little mobile machines running around site, just printing 200 of these cabins. Interesting. Moving the printer a couple times for each cabin and then moving on to the next one. Yeah, well, I've developed... Uh, the, the cabins, I don't think, will even need to be... The printer will not need to be moved. I mean, if I do them in a 6-metre, 7-metre radius and the printer is facilitating that, then we just park the printer in the middle. Circular, okay. Correct, print the cabins and off we go. Nice. Mm. So, so that, that's another uh, inspiration, I suppose, or motivation is the right word, you know, to develop the mobile machine and the smaller, the smaller size printer. It has huge benefits in the setup and takedown time compared to the gantry system, leveling it in, getting it all uh, rigid. Uh, absolutely, yep, for sure. Uh, yeah, so it'll be interesting to see what you do. We, so we've worked very hard to get the gantry down to a four-hour assembly time on site. So it'll be mm -hmm. when we print this first home uh, for Simmons Homes, which is, a, say, the three-bedroom single story, uh, it'll be interesting to see if we've sort of achieved our outcome and what, we've, what we thought would happen. Yeah, and if not, you hit the drawing boards and uh, Keep do it again. <laughs> That's right. It's, it seems like you're having fun, which is uh, an important part, probably. I am, and I haven't had fun. I mean, I love still love coming to Modular and coming to work, but you know, I haven't had fun. I haven't been challenged for a long time, you know. And that's some people go to work to hibernate. You know, I go to work to to fight the good fight <laughs> and to be challenged. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, there's a day that I can buy an island and disappear. But uh, I don't know. That's, that's not today. Fair enough. Islands uh, have been out for a little while. It might be another five or ten years before <laughs> islands are cool again. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Time to pick up a bargain then. Yeah. Yep. Very cool. And uh, anything you want to talk about 
like living in Australia? Uh, did you get put in jail or anything? No, not yet. Yeah, no. I mean, look, I, 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 I've traveled around the world. I love the States. I love Europe. Uh, but I do, I do like Australia, even though from its remoteness, uh, you know, there is a hell of a lot, a lot of opportunity here and we've got a very large landmass compared to the population. Uh, so there's a lot of opportunity, you know, they're very, Australians seem to have a good uptake for new technology. Uh, so it's good to be supported in that regard. And obviously we've got a very good climate similar to probably California, I imagine. Uh, where we, it is conducive to print. If we want to print outdoors, we can print outdoors almost all year round. You know, in summer, we what's our maximum temperatures is probably the high 30 degrees Celsius. Uh, and yeah, sure, it snows in the mountains in winters, but typically the days are 15, 16 degrees Celsius is the coldest. So look, we've got the perfect climate, so why not, why not capitalize on that? Did your region go on uh, like long-term lockdowns and stuff? Uh, yeah, we did. Yeah, it wasn't as bad as the rest of the world. Uh, the government were a little bit looser on that element. But yeah, we did get locked down for weeks at a time, I suppose, where you could only go out to go to the doctors, the usual, go shopping and so forth, or exercise. So that was a, that was a very new experience for me. Uh, but we fortunately, being a manufacturing business for modular walls, uh, we didn't get locked down because we were we were supporting the building industry, so we were considered a critical, critical uh, industry. Uh, so we, yes, sure, we all had to check in. We all had to wear masks. We couldn't have more than three. You know, we had to separate. That sounds just like the American rules in most states. Sure. Uh, I don't know why I heard so many horror stories, uh, you know, about Australia. No, no, we were fine. And now that's good to hear. Now, now it's just self-managed. Like you guys, there's no rules. You just got to self-manage. You know, speaking of, I guess, on the topic of Australia, one of my all-time favorite heroes is Steve Irwin. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah, that was a sad story. I remember I remember where I was. You know, it was a certain life life uh, events, I suppose. I was, in a, I was in a taxi going to the airport when I heard on the radio that Steve Irwin had died, uh, yeah, which is which is pretty sad. I mean, he was a pretty larger-than-life sort of character. Yeah, he was. Mm, no, that was really sad. But it, it's nice he's... Uh, you know, we see a lot of his kids. I think you see you see his one of his daughters. Uh, you see his kids a bit on uh, Jimmy Fallon and all these sort of late shows. I've seen them, uh, but they seem to be doing well. You know, and they've got their own sort of lives and industries. And uh, yeah, they trade, trade. Yeah, I see them on Twitter all the time. They're always at a zoo. It's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah cool. No, and they're good. I mean, they're, they're eco warriors. They're you know they're trying to do the right thing uh, for the planet. So no, good on them. Yeah. And it seems they're succeeding. I think she just got married, actually. I saw Bindio and... Yeah, that broke my heart a little bit, but it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nah. No, they seem like good people. Yeah, for sure. Well, if anybody's listening that wants to work at Contour 3D, they're excited about what you're doing, they can apply at your website at the link in the description. And, uh, yeah, it was great talking to you. Really insightful and learning about getting insight about your old business and the journey of how you got to where you are today. Uh, is there anything else we can talk about? Uh, nothing, that, nothing that comes to mind immediately. No, but if you want to call back at any point, yeah, feel free. Uh, yeah, cool. I certainly will. Uh, next time you guys do a big project and if you have footage from the other stuff, uh, we could do some other videos. This has been awesome, man. Thank you. No, you're very welcome. No, I really appreciate what you've done. So, no, thanks, Jared.